Hi everyone, and welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. Hearing regeneration. It's always a big topic of discussion on the Tinnitus Talk forum. Now, a few months ago, we noticed that there was one particularly active thread on this topic, and it was about the Huff Ear Institute. It's a nonprofit research organization based in Oklahoma City, and they are working on two new hearing regeneration treatments. And I had the pleasure of speaking with their CEO, Dr. Richard Kopke, and their chief philanthropy officer, Justin DeMoss. In the interview, we go into depth about the two treatments they are developing. The one that is in the most advanced stages is a pill that was discovered to be able to regenerate damaged nerve endings in the inner ear. Initially, they referred to it as the bomb blast pill because of its potential to mitigate the effects of an acoustic trauma. And you will notice during the interview that I use this term a couple of times, but in fact, Huff now believes the pill will have wider applications for noise-induced hearing loss and potentially also for tinnitus. So for now, they refer to it simply as the hearing loss drug or by its technical name, NHPN1010. All right. I don't want to dwell on this more now because you'll learn a lot about it during the interview that's coming up shortly. Something we're particularly excited about is that the publication of this podcast actually coincides with a big announcement from Huff about a new partnership. Huff was already partnering with Auditus, which is a subsidiary of Otologic Pharmaceutics. And Auditus has now entered into an agreement with another pharmaceutical company, Oblato. As part of this new agreement, Oblato is expected to initiate a phase two clinical trial to evaluate the potential of Huff's drug to prevent and treat hearing loss. And in follow-up studies, they may also test for the efficacy for treating tinnitus and improving ability to understand speech in the presence of background noise. So this new partnership is very good news for tinnitus patients because it means that Huff's hearing loss drug which seems to have potential benefits for tinnitus as well, can now proceed to the next phase of clinical trials. So things are moving ahead. I should point out that while I was conducting the interview with Huff last week, they were not yet allowed to reveal the name of their new pharmaceutical partner. So we're talking about their new partner without naming them, which seems a bit awkward, but we now know they were referring to Oblato. Okay, final note before listening to the interview. Uh, We always publish transcripts for all of our podcasts because we are aware that some of our audience is not able to listen to a long podcast and we want to make sure they can still benefit from it. So we have an amazing volunteer, Liz, who transcribes the episodes for us, which, by the way, takes about 15 hours. Uh, However, in this case, because we wanted to get this episode out quickly to coincide with Huff's press release on the new partnership, the transcription will follow later and should be available in about a week. I want to thank the folks from Huff for collaborating with Tinnitus Talk. We had a number of preliminary discussions with them and they've been very keen to engage with the Tinnitus community. Uh, We actually faced a lot of challenges in getting this recording done. There were several test goals and failed recording attempts because we couldn't get sufficient audio quality. 
but Rick and Justin were very patient and persistent throughout all of this, so I want to thank them for that. I also want to thank our Patreon supporters. We have 49 people by now financially supporting our efforts, and I can't even tell you how much that means to us. We don't get paid for doing this. It's a volunteer effort. So all the money goes directly into producing this podcast. Please consider supporting us through Patreon if you value our content. And now, without further ado, I present to you the Huffier Institute. So I'm here with Dr. Rick Kopke and Justin DeMoss from the Huffier Institute. Rick, can you tell us what uh, Huff is all about? You're, you're the CEO of the Institute, correct? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Hazel. Thanks for having us today. I really appreciate it. So the Huff Ear Institute is a nonprofit organization that I lead. And uh, our vision is that all who have ears will hear. Some people have ears, but they don't hear well. Uh, and then our our mission is to restore hearing worldwide through research, teaching, and humanitarian efforts. So the research we'll talk more about, but teaching, um, we have uh, ear surgeons from developing countries come and live in our homes and go to the OR with us and learn about ear surgery and then humanitarian efforts. We go to to the countries where those fellows came from and uh, work side by side with them uh, to just kind of have an ongoing relationship. And then, of course, as we studied noise-induced and blast-induced hearing loss more, uh, you can't study that without starting to think about tinnitus. What made you um, get involved in this line of work? Was it you actually who who started, who created the Institute? Well, actually, Jack Huff started the Institute back in the 80s, and he is one of the pioneers with cochlear implant and other uh, devices to help restore hearing. So he actually started it. And then uh, I was in the military for over 22 years. And Jack and I met while I was in the military and became close friends. He's like a mentor of mine, was like a mentor of mine. And because of my uh, service in the military, I really got sensitized to noise-induced hearing loss and ways to maybe uh, reverse that. So Jack, after I got out of the military, Jack invited me to come here and, and work on uh, a pharmaceutical or pharmacological approach to to uh, hearing loss. Right. And uh, did you, because of your time serving in the military, personally suffer from hearing loss or tinnitus? Well, I have a little bit of uh, hearing loss and, uh, and tinnitus. Uh, we do have to do uh, weapons qualification, but I used earplugs, um, but I wasn't deployed in combat. So uh, probably have some hunting and recreational noise uh, damage from when I was a youth. I see. And um, Justin, let's introduce you to our audience as well. What's, what's your role at Huff and how did you first become involved in this line of work? 
Well, I became involved with Javier Institute uh, just over a year and a half ago when I responded to a job posting uh, that they were looking for someone to raise funds um, from private uh, individuals and foundations and so forth to complement the government funds that we receive to advance the research. And so that is my role. I I connect people with the mission uh, and allow them the opportunity to uh, financially support and advance the research. Did you want to work on hearing issues and tinnitus because of any personal connection with these issues? Yeah. So when I when I first saw the job posting, it made me think of my grandmother. My grandmother and I had a really strong relationship because she raised me when I was a little kid until I was about 10 um, because my parents were both working two jobs to get us out of poverty. Uh, as such, I got really close with grandma and grandpa. Uh, my grandfather, shortly after we moved and uh, started uh, kind of living as a traditional family again, my, uh, my grandfather developed Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS. And uh, he was diagnosed and within a year he had passed. And so I had taken care of him during that time and my grandmother and I got even closer together. And so from that point, you know, 30 years plus ago uh, until about four years ago, my grandmother and I would talk on the phone um, two, three times a week just to hear each other and support each other and, and, and continue that relationship. About four years ago, her hearing got so bad that she had to get hearing aids. And um, hearing aids and telephones sometimes don't work very well. She has the CAPTCHA telephone where it reads out what I'm saying. It's nice, but it's still far away from what it used to be. And so it's difficult for her and myself. She gets frustrated and, and so forth. So we went from talking literally every single week to talking three or four times a year. So that's my, my motivation because I, I see what it does to people's relationships. And, um, I mean, I'd love to help my grandma if we can. Uh, but she's also, she's also up there in, in years. So that's the urgency for me to get this, uh, research through the trials and so forth to get it on the market. Yeah. Uh, do either of you have tinnitus? And if so, to what degree? Yeah, I have a tinnitus in both ears pretty much 24-7. It's mostly an annoyance. doesn't keep me awake at night. doesn't interfere with my lifestyle too much. And I notice the things that make it worse and the things that make it better. <laughs> so I have personal experience with that one. For me, um, my sister, who was five years older when I was seven, put a lit firecracker into my right ear. And so from that point, I've had this ringing in my right ear. And I just thought that was just normal. That was just part of life until I started working here. And then I found out that there's a name called tinnitus, uh, which is usually the term that researchers use or tinnitus, which is the term that, you know, people who suffer from it usually use. And so that's where I've learned about it. And it's, it's interesting. I, as time has progressed, I, especially like when I talk about it, I become more aware of it. And so, I feel like I kind of been able to, you know, just kind of mind over matter it. So mine's very, very uh, mild compared to the people on the forums and so forth that we've been talking with experience. Right. So it, it doesn't on a daily basis bother you per se. Yeah. I've just, I've just learned to, to be able to deal with it, to be able to just 
know that it's there and know that it's going to go away in a few seconds. Yeah, as you know, we run a support forum where, you know, people come there for help and advice from others because they're really struggling to to cope. For some people, it's, uh, you know, beyond beyond annoying to the point where it's debilitating and um, they really can't function in daily life. They can't sleep. They shy away from uh, social interaction, um, can't work, etc. face concentration issues. Um, but I'm sure you guys are very aware of that and that that's one of the reasons you're doing this, right? Right. I, I see patients several days a week with hearing loss and tinnitus. And a um, certain percentage of those, for sure, Hazel, it's really more than a, an annoyance. It's uh, really debilitating. And uh, so that's a fewer number of people but it, percentage-wise, but it's still a, a huge number of people that are really suffering, having difficulty coping, and especially to have an answer for them would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think when we talk about numbers, it's like I've heard estimates of 1% to 2% of the total population have tinnitus and describe it as debilitating. So that, that's a huge number of people. Mm-hmm. We want to hear, obviously, about the the treatments you're developing. And, and we'll go quite in depth on that, but maybe... Uh, Rick, you can start with just a very general outline of what you're working on. Well, we have uh, two therapeutics we're working on uh, in general. One is a pill, and the other is an injection therapy, ideally uh, delivered transtepanically. So the pill is a, a combination of two drugs, N acetylcysteine and a nitrone compound. And initially it was developed as, called it a bomb blast pill, because in combat, in the military, if you get in a combat situation or exposed to an IED, uh, you don't have time to put your hearing protection in. So the idea was you could take this pill shortly after injury and reduce some of the permanent damage. So that's how it was originally intended and in preclinical rodent studies, it works very well in that regard. And then um, subsequently, we found out that it may have some restorative capabilities and it may have some efficacy for uh, tinnitus, at least as we've seen in um, preclinical rodent models. And it may actually, it seems to regenerate the afferent uh, nerve endings and synapses at the base of the inner hair cell, uh, quite interestingly. Yeah, that is very interesting. And um, is it meant to work right after an acoustic trauma? Is is that uh, the, is there a certain time window of opportunity there, or is it just would it generally regenerate hair cells at any? You know, in any uh, instance. <laughs> yeah. So this doesn't regenerate hair cells, but it regenerates nerve endings. Uh, the injection technology regenerates hair cells, but with regard to the to the window there for the pill, uh, we know it's effective if given 
shortly after the injury in animal models for sure, but we've done some delayed studies where it was administered four weeks later and there was uh, regeneration of the nerve endings and uh, reduction of tinnitus percept. So, so it may work in chronic situations and we're submitting a grant to that effect right now to look more intently and intensely into the uh, CMVIC and reverse uh, chronic tinnitus. But our pilot data suggests that it may. That sounds promising. What stage is this research currently at? It's gone through phase one of the FDA. So it was found to be quite safe and quite well tolerated with very few side effects at a high dose. And the uh, pharmacokinetic, pharmacokinetics were favorable. Uh, so uh, it's ready for a, a phase two study. And recently, the pill technology was acquired by a pharmaceutical company, and they plan to take it through a phase two study, and if that works out, uh, through phase three. But you guys will remain involved? Yes, they'd like us to help them with the effort. They know a lot about pharmaceuticals, but not a lot about the ear or tinnitus. Okay, so it's it's kind of a joint venture situation. Yes. All right, so that's the 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 bomb blast pill, as it's colloquially called, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, which which regenerates uh, nerve endings. I just stood corrected on that count, uh, and then your other treatment is an intratympanic injection that is meant to regenerate hair cells. Correct. Correct. Uh huh. All right. Can you tell us a bit more about that one? Sure, be happy to. So the injection technology involves uh, silencing RNA that's encapsulated in PLGA nanoparticles. And um, we have some data infusing that therapeutic directly into noise-injured uh, cochlea in a preclinical model with restoration of hearing. And, but our, our hope is that it will work by transtympanic injection and be able to cross the round window membrane and uh, restore hearing a little bit less invasively. So far, we've shown that transtympanic injection does knock down the target in the cochlea quite well. So with silencing RNA, we're trying to knock down HES1 uh, protein levels, and HES1 is sort of like a parking brake on regeneration when you knock HES1 down, HES down in supporting cells, it seems to allow them to transdifferentiate and to regenerate into new cochlear hair cells. And uh, there's uh, res restoration of function that goes with that. So it's, it sounds like you're kind of triggering the natural restorative functions that are already inherent in our inner ear, but removing some mechanism that normally inhibits that? Correct, yeah. S1 protein is inhibitory, so by knocking down the message with silencing RNA, it reduces 
that inhibitory protein level and then allows some regeneration to occur. Interesting. And and what uh, phase is this research at? Well, this is the earlier stage. We definitely have a proof of concept. We've been able to reproduce the results about in five different uh, experiments in vivo. The response in vivo is quite robust, quite reproducible, uh, clinically uh, relevant amount of hearing loss. We haven't seen any um, adverse effects so far, but right now we're working on different delivery routes, uh, formulation, and then we'll be ready to do animal toxicology studies in preparation for uh, submission of an IND and um, phase one trial. All right. I guess for both of these treatments, what what our audience really wants to know is is how hopeful are you that they may benefit tinnitus, but also potentially hyperacusis uh, patients. Well, I think the preclinical data for tinnitus are pretty strong and reproducible, and we've had an outside lab uh, reproduce some of our data. So I think the preclinical data for tinnitus are are pretty strong. Uh, In addition to decreasing tinnitus percept, we see a number of biomarkers that are normalized that were previously abnormal from the uh, noise exposure that are associated with tinnitus both in the cochlea and the brainstem and the auditory cortex. So uh, we see a correlation between regrown nerve endings and normalization of uh, wave five, wave one ratio in the ABR uh, tracings and normalization of these biomarkers that are thrown off that are associated with tinnitus. So really the data are quite robust. All that being said, it's a big jump from small animals to human, but I think the preclinical data are very strong for tinnitus. Hyperacusis, we really haven't looked at that too much. In theory, I think it should be helpful, but um, we really uh, haven't explored that to any degree at this point, but um, would be willing to uh, do so as we have funding and bandwidth. All right. Yeah. And when you talk about a reduction in tinnitus, uh, people always ask, are you talking about a reduction in loudness or uh, the related distress that comes with tinnitus? Uh, But I know these things are very difficult to measure objectively. And so far, I think it's only been in animals uh, that you've tested it. So I don't know if you can say anything about that at this time. Right. So so far, the only testing has been in uh small animals, and we use uh, gap inhibition startle testing uh, method that was popularized by Jeremy Turner and others to test that. So in terms of subjective effects like you were talking about, we really haven't tested that yet. Yeah, that might come with the uh, clinical trials in humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's... uh... Uh, worth also asking, um, because I know there are people out there, even people who are suffering badly from tinnitus, who feel bad when they hear about 
uh, animal testing and um, are concerned about it, uh, maybe it's worthwhile explaining why those tests are necessary. Sure. Well, in research, we do as much as we can with cell cultures or test tubes, but to study something like tinnitus or hearing loss, you need an intact organism. And because we're interested in human trials, we need a mammalian system to study, and it has to be an intact system. And the FDA mandates that there are some data that show uh, efficacy, not only a lack of toxicity, but efficacy. So um, all of our work is done through uh, very strict animal use regulations, and we and we pay a lot of attention to uh, minimizing animal stress uh, as much as we can, and do everything quite humanely. And we work with an animal use uh, committee that. Uh, approves what we do, but on that committee are scientists and also lay people and uh, veterinary staff. And then, so we monitor that very closely and we pay a lot of attention to it. But you finally have to study this in some sort of intact system of hearing or tinnitus before you know if it might have any chance to work in human. Right. So at this point, point in time, maybe it'll be different in, in future, but at this point in time, we literally can't develop these treatments without animal testing. Correct. Yeah. All right. We're, we're going to talk more about the treatments, but I also want to touch a bit on the business perspectives. So the kinds of questions that came up on the Tinnitus Talk Forum are about, um, you know, what other institutes or researchers uh, or maybe commercial parties are you guys working with? Um, can you touch on that? Well, we uh, have a, a track record of working uh, through grant funding from the Department of Defense. We hold a grant with the Department of Defense currently, and we've had grants uh, through them in the past since noise-induced hearing loss and tinnitus are such big disabilities with the military and the VA, so they've been uh, good funding partners uh, over the years. And then we also work with some Oklahoma State grants, OCAS grants, they're called, um, and they've supported uh, a lot of the recent tinnitus work and some of the regenerative work. And then we have uh, both a broad base of generous donors that donate to Huffier Institute and then we can use those funds for research. And, and so that's really helpful. And then we uh, licensed uh, some of the technology to a company called Odologic Pharmaceutics, which is a biotech startup. And their job is to help us commercialize this because Huffier Institute really isn't a commercialization entity. So uh, Odologic Pharmaceutics, in turn, sub-licensed the pill technology to a large pharmaceutical company, and they're helping taking it through phase two and phase three. With the injection technology, we're still looking for 
collaborators or investors. We have ongoing uh, discussions with a couple of entities there. And we're in the midst of a DOD grant with that particular technology on preclinical work. All right. So you're looking for a commercial partner at the moment for mm -hmm. the injection technology. Okay. Yes, and, we are. Uh, have you been looking to attract capital from investors? Uh, yes. Have you been able to do so? To a certain degree initially, but those discussions are ongoing and there's active interest in that. And any upcoming partnerships that you can tell us about? Sure. A biotech firm, um, international biotech firm, has uh, agreed and licensed the technology uh, from OPI, Ologic Pharmaceuticals, Inc., uh, to take the drug through the remaining clinical trials. So assuming everything goes well with clinical two, it'll move on to phase three clinical trials. With that, that's, there's many people that have been a part of that, um, uh, local companies uh, here uh, and partners and so forth. So we list all those all those partners out. And then we also list the generous donors. And, and that's something I think we probably need to keep in mind is that a lot of this research uh, was funded uh, by, by government grants, but a good portion of it was also funded by individuals who themselves suffer from tinnitus, hearing loss, and want to see uh, a treatment get uh, across uh, and on the market uh, to help them, uh, to help their, their own families uh, and, and people after them. Because as you know, anyone who experiences uh, tinnitus or hearing loss, it has a dramatic, a very dramatic effect on their social life and the quality of life and their ability to uh, have relationships, their ability to uh, have uh, various opportunities in the world, in the workforce, and so forth. And so what we want to do is we want to renew those possibilities. We want to reconnect people to the world around them and, and, and give them hope. And so a big part of that is having donors and supporters to financially say, you know what, I believe in this. This is something that I want to see happen. That's the value that I have. Well, now I'm going to put a voice to that value by supporting financially the work of research teams all over the world to make it a reality. Right. So individual donations are actually crucial in, in uh, getting your, your treatments to market is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So here's a, here would be an example. Right now, we're currently trying to raise $735,000 for a proof of concept study uh, for the hearing loss pill with tinnitus. That'll help us do the research necessary to, to lend support for phase two trials for that particular indication. So what that, what that means is... Um, when we go through the clinical trials, and Dr. Kopke will correct me if I say anything wrong, when we go through the clinical trials and so forth and the, and the process of getting it approved by the FDA, it's usually approved for certain indications. And the, the, the pharmaceutical company is going to take whatever approach that they feel is best to get the, the technology to the market. So if it's cochlear implant trauma or something else like hearing loss, then that will be what is used for the trials to get us uh, 
to that point. Now, afterwards, doctors can prescribe the the pill or what have you uh, for something else, but that doesn't necessarily mean that insurance will cover it, nor does it mean that the doctor will prescribe it. Whereas right, if the indication... Sorry. <laughs> oh, You're talking about off-label prescriptions, correct? Correct. Correct. So if we can demonstrate that indication beforehand, that helps it get into people's uh, that have tinnitus uh, more quickly with insurance. Uh, now, we can't guarantee that any insurance company is going to cover it, but if the indication isn't in the research and the clinical trials, then that becomes uh, an issue. Yeah, the $700,000 study that Justin was referring to is to really nail down decisively that with with additional data that this works for chronic tinnitus. You can give it weeks after tinnitus is established and it still reverses tinnitus. So Okay, that that's great. Yeah, because you're saying without that proof of concept, you may get the treatment to market, but then tinnitus patients may not have access to it per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would be a a real pity. Yeah. Do you, maybe this is a bit of a sidetrack question, but do you guys know why pharmaceutical companies in general are don't seem that keen to invest in tinnitus treatments? Yeah, I um, I think one challenge is it's so it's a difficult thing to study because it's so subjective. Treating hearing loss, we have certain audiologic tests, hearing tests that are fairly objective and reproducible. And so it's easy to it's easier to measure changes in hearing. But uh, we have some great questionnaire type uh, instruments for tinnitus for sure, but those are all fairly subjective. So that, I think that's one of the challenges. Another challenge is that Tinnitus is a, it's a symptom. It's not really a diagnosis. So you can have noise-induced tinnitus, toxin-induced tinnitus, age-related tinnitus, tinnitus from acute trauma, tinnitus from blast, tinnitus from chronic noise. And so uh, it's very heterogeneous in terms of etiology. And so when you design a study, that can be a confounding variable that's hard to deal with. So I think that's another challenge. These are challenges. I don't think they're unsurmountable, but I think sometimes companies may want to shy away from that. I can't really believe I got into the tinnitus realm because <laughs> I always thought tinnitus is way more challenging than hearing loss. and <laughs> It's hard to understand the whole system, but um, here we are, so we're happy to be here, but it's tinnitus is challenging for a number of, of reasons. Yeah, that's unfortunately what I've heard from a lot of people in on both the research side and the and the commercial side. It's the the it's exactly those things you mentioned, right? The lack of any objective way to measure tinnitus and therefore to me- an objective way to measure effectiveness of the treatment basically and the heterogeneity which there's just so many different types of causes i think the list of potential causes for tinnitus is like near to 200 or something mm-hmm. like that so right 
But on the hopeful side, over the last five years, there have been more and more um, clinical trials for tinnitus drugs. So I think pharmaceutical companies are becoming more interested in it. And I think, you know, they're willing to look at ways to overcome those challenges. There's certainly a lot of people that could be benefited for sure throughout the world. So to come up with something that helps is, you know, very worthwhile. So I think on the hopeful side, more and more companies are are uh, delving into that realm. That's promising to hear, right? So um, if I understand correctly, your new partnership is uh, is instrumental or is, has now helped you get beyond the initial stages of research and will be uh, allowing you to move forward to get the bomb blast pill through the next clinical trial phases and get it to market, right? So without that partnership, you might have been waiting or uh, not have had the funding or the means to do that. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, that partnership is essential. As I said, we're a nonprofit organization, not a commercialization entity. So our goal is to come up with new discoveries and then partner with someone else to get those discoveries to market. And we're so excited and pleased, you know, for this opportunity to actually move forward and with that sort of a model with a with a commercialization partner who wants to take it forward. So it's a great partnership. Yeah, so the, the partnership sounds really exciting, and, and especially the fact, I think, that it comes from this collaboration between the nonprofit space and uh, a commercial parties. So uh, I think that uh, really sounds like the way forward to me. Can you tell us about other collaborations that you guys have uh or, or just, you know, any parties that you're in communication with. I'm particularly interested also whether you're connected to any kind of patient organizations in the hearing or tinnitus space. So uh, I'm also um, a clinician and ear surgeon and, and otologist. So I have the clinical uh, background there. And I work with several other otologists who also uh, participate in Huff Ear Institute. And then uh, we've worked a lot with Yoash Raphael at the University of Michigan. And we've worked a lot with Jeremy Turner and his group. Uh, Jim Kaltenbach has been a big help when we were launching into the tinnitus realm to help us understand uh, the various mechanisms and whatnot. And um, so those have been a few of our uh, collaborators. Uh, Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation helped us. Uh, actually, it was a co-discovery with them on the pill. So Bob Floyd and I worked very closely on this together in the in the initial years. Let's see, we we usually were active in the Association for Research in Otolaryngology. We usually present a poster or two or sometimes a podium presentation 
at those meetings. I'm a, a member of the National Hearing Conservation Association. And there are a lot of other organizations we could we could work with. We just haven't set those up. Haven't got there yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so there's no connection, for instance, with the American Tinnitus Association or the British Tinnitus Association or uh, any any of those types of organizations. Well, the connection would be that we look at their websites and see what their what information they're generating and whatnot. Uh, we haven't applied for any grants through them as yet because DOD and uh, Oklahoma state grants have been a good source so far, but we're yeah. open to lots of different pathways. Yeah, who knows in future. Uh, uh, Justin, on the Tinnitus Talk Forum, some people have also been asking what they can do or what the Tinnitus community can do to help because they're really keen to see you guys to help you guys move forward, basically. What would you say to them? Yes, I'd say there's there's four things that, that the tinnitus talk community uh, and people that suffer from tinnitus or hearing loss can do. And the first would be to um, to increase our knowledge of the scientific research that's being done uh, versus the the popular fads that uh, that don't have science behind them. One of the things that that was very evident in the forums and people I talk with uh, on a daily basis is they're they're suffering from this, and it, it, it is very debilitating to them. They want it gone. They want to hear and enjoy the sound of silence, uh, and they're willing to try anything. To make that happen. And so some people spend $30, $40 on a supplement. Other people are spending tens of thousands of dollars on some popular fad and not getting results. And then they get frustrated and, and understandably so. But, but then that frustration creeps over to researchers and research institutes that are, that are trying to, to push this forward from a scientific perspective. And I know one of the things I got asked multiple times, like, you know, well, how can you be sure? And the bottom line is we cannot be sure. We don't know that this is going to get approved and it's going to work uh, or anything. We just believe that it will. And that's why we're working hard to, to get to that point. So I think the first step of understanding, uh, you know, really what's going on uh, and uh, what the research is and is if there's science behind a particular uh, treatment is is really that first step. The second one is to share that very knowledge with other people and to have those conversations and to challenge people. Say, hey, you know, there were several people on the forums that said, hey, give give this guy a chance. He's talking to us. Look at their website. They have lots of peer-reviewed uh, journals listed there. Uh, looks like the research team is top-notch. And so that was very reaffirming to, reaffirming to me. I understand where the uh, where the hesitation and the suspicion can can come from. The third thing that people can do is contribute financially to research. It's just like anything else, you know, children with cancer or any, any other cause that is important to you. Whatever it is that you value, um, then financially support that. And that will that will help advance that research for whatever the value it is that you have. Um, and the fourth would be to invite others to join you. Don't just limit it to just yourself. You know other people uh, that are suffering just like you. Share all of this with them and invite them to join you. Um, it doesn't, I mean, $735,000 seems like an awful lot of money to a lot of people because that's 
that's more than many of us make over several years. But if you think about it, there's 27,000 followers on Tennis Talk alone. And if you take that and divide, you know, uh, that 735,000 by that, and we're, we're talking about dollars. You know, and so it is a numbers game. Uh, there are some people that will not support financially, cannot support financially, and that is okay. Uh, but if you can, and this is a value to you, then then support the research. And you know, I would I would even go so far as to say all the research that you can. Yeah, that I think that's valuable advice, Justin. And I I recognize a lot of what you're saying. Um, about there being a certain level of skepticism, maybe sometimes even suspicion towards researchers. And, you know, it, maybe it's it's understandable to some degree because, uh, as you also pointed out, there's a lot of scam products out there. So, you know, people, uh, people get cynical after some time. There have also been, you know, in the past decade or so, a number of new treatments come to market that, you know, genetics patients thought, oh, this is really going to be the thing that, that that cures us. And then it turned out to be a disappointment. So, you know, in that context, the attitude is sort of understandable. But I think we also have to acknowledge and respect that there's, at this moment in time, I don't think there have ever been more people working on tinnitus than, than today. Uh, and there's I, a lot of researchers, and I've I've met a lot of them personally, and I'm, uh, and I know you guys are certainly you know fall in that category. Are really really doing their best, basically, you know, they're, they're generally trying to fix this uh, this problem. But it takes time. It's difficult. Uh, science is a you know long hard road with many twists and turns. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's yeah. like watching a glacier melt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So people get impatient, right? And they're like, why can't you get this to market? Uh, why can't you fast track it? It's a difficult uh, discussion. Uh, and it's sometimes difficult to explain, I guess. Yeah. And I would say that that is one of the, the primary drivers for me to do my job well, and, and to serve Rick in the Institute. Uh, because I hear of that suffering uh, from people. And it, it it moves me to try to do the the be- the very best that I can uh, to to raise the money necessary to to get these treatments advanced further along that uh, scientific pipeline um, because of all of those things that are completely understandable why people are skeptical why people feel hurt and in in some cases even angry it's all understandable and that's the reason why we're doing the work that we do. It's kind of hard to explain all the complexities of research and research. You kind of have to search and then search again. A lot of variables that you have to take into account. But one thing I'm really thankful for is our research team. Our, they're top-notch people. They, they approach this with great passion. And they work really hard, evenings, weekends. They really are motivated to to move this quickly and get it to market too, and uh, put a lot of uh, energy into it and a lot of passion into it. So it's really a joy and a privilege to work with a 
team like that and then to have Justin and his team equally passionate. It's a, a good combination, but it's still slower than <laughs> we'd all like it to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, the, the frustration that you point to, Justin, it's it's also part of it is also that people who suffer severely from tinnitus feel like they're never really been, they haven't been taken seriously by the medical community in general. I guess that's something you guys encounter a lot. You know, you probably encounter people telling you that a lot, that if they've gone to their doctor and they've been told, oh, it's nothing, mm -hmm. it's just yeah. a sound, just learn to live with it, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> well, we hope to change that narrative. <laughs> yeah, I think we that's that's something that you know in tinnitus healthcare really has to change and stop telling people that it's nothing and just learn to live with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, so um I want to I want to dive a bit deeper into the treatments but maybe maybe first can we talk about to what extent are you guys able to say anything about timelines for the coming years do you have any kind of tentative launch dates in mind you know markets where you will be uh, launching your treatments etc are you able to say anything on that sure we can we can share uh, that information of course it it uh, depends on everything going according to plan and funding but um, we hope to complete a phase two trial for the pill technology in 2020 and hope to be launching it in, in the mid-2020s. That's kind of our general roadmap. And then for the injection technology, we're not as far down the road there, so we still have to do a phase one study, for example. So, But we're still hoping to um, launch that by... 2027, and uh, we have um, sort of a, a business and science roadmap set up that um, has us um, moving through phase two over the next several years, depending on funding and whatnot. So, all right. So, so do you know when you might be able to start phase one, or are there some bottlenecks to res resolve first? Well, we need to go through uh, toxicology studies after we do formulation. Then we need to uh, make large quantities of the of the uh, drug under GLP conditions for the clinical studies. So there's some work to do. That'll probably take a couple years. And in terms of market rollout, I assume you're first focusing on the U.S. and then rest of the world. Probably, although that's probably more of a question for our commercialization right. partner. But U.S. markets are often initial uh, focus if the FDA pathway is chosen. All right, so let's dive a bit deeper into the treatments and, and how they work, what the mechanisms behind uh, are. Uh, so to start with the hearing loss pill, can you just explain the basic mechanisms of how it works? Sure. 
So there are two drugs in the hearing loss pill in combination. One is N-acetylcysteine or NAC, and the other is a, a nitrone compound. The scientific name is, is too long to repeat, <laughs> but we affectionately call it HPN07, and they're in combination. So collectively and synergistically, they deal with free radical uh, toxins. They curtail cell deathway, cell death pathway um, programs. They work to uh, reduce reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species. Uh, NAC serves as a, a synthetic molecule for glutathione, which is one of the cell's most powerful antioxidants. They fight glutamatic cytotoxicity. They fight the role of ischemia, the, uh, the damage from ischemia reperfusion. And interestingly, uh, they seem to uh, regenerate these little afferent nerve endings and synapses at the base of the inner hair cell. In addition, they seem to prevent the accumulation of pathologic tau protein, which can be found in the auditory pathway from the cochlea through the central auditory system, and those pathologic uh, tau proteins are neurotoxic and produce neurodegeneration. And um, so NHPN1010 or this combination product um, can actually uh, robustly prevent the ongoing accumulation of this toxic protein that can be a consequence of noise or blast exposure. All right. I, I'm not going to pretend I understood all of that, but I think I get, get the basic idea. Um, uh, I'm going to also ask a few specific questions that uh, were asked on the Tinnitus Talk forum. So someone asked if this pill is uh, a combination of a, a high-potency antioxidant and a free radical scavenger. Couldn't you get the same effect with just combining astaxanthin and a high dose of vitamin C? I think in general, you can get some effects with uh, other antioxidants. Uh, this particular combination that we're using is uh, highly synergistic, though, and it's much more than an antioxidant. That's only one of the properties. So it's a little bit different in that regard. Okay. Certainly there's a lot of literature to support the usefulness of antioxidants and noise-induced hearing loss. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, it's not an effect you can replicate by just throwing together some other compounds that are you know, in a similar category. Not necessarily. Right. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. And are are there any potential side effects that you know of? Um, because I think people always find it hard to imagine how a pill, something you take orally, you know, how it can target such a specific part of the body, and uh, you know, may it, it might also uh, affect or potentially cause damage to other systems or organs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's always a concern. 
and safety studies begin in phase one clinical trials, but they continue on through phase two and phase three and post-marketing studies. So the combination of NAC and uh, HPN07 was studied in very high dose in healthy uh, human subjects in a phase one study, and there were really almost no uh, side effects in the in the treatment group compared to the that were different from the placebo group. So it seems very safe and well tolerated. One of the compounds, HPN07, was used uh, previously as a potential stroke drug, and it was uh, given to thousands of patients in much higher doses intravenously and went all the way through phase three clinical trials. And again, really no safety issues with that. The reason it's not on the market is in phase three trials, it didn't seem to be that effective for stroke. But lots of patients had exposure to it. Lots of subjects had exposure to it at very high doses, even higher than you would see with oral dosing. And uh, it was very, very safe. All right. Well, that, that sounds promising. But in terms of the targeting, can you explain that a little bit? So when you take a pill like that, does it really, does it just t- target the the ear or does it affect the whole body and therefore also the ear? Yeah, it's distributed throughout the whole body and therefore the ear for for a pill. That's for sure. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But even so, again, we didn't see many uh, side effects or uh, from it, even though there was that systemic exposure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think we've addressed this already a, a little bit, but um, can you tell us a bit more about what the treatment protocol would look like? So when would people take it? How often? Uh, how long would it take to work, etc.? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, we just have to speak theoretically again because there haven't been any human clinical trials. Obviously, uh, taking it soon after some injury like uh, uh, unexpected noise exposure or a very loud rock concert or something like that, taking it initially or even preventatively would be helpful. It's generally designed to be taken by mouth twice a day, and uh, it tends to stay around in the in the bloodstream for a fair amount of time. And it, I think that, uh, so far we've tested it out for two weeks of treatment. So you might, if you're taking it for tinnitus, you might take it for uh, two weeks and. Hopefully, the regenerated nerve endings and whatnot would remain permanently so, and so you might only have to take it for two weeks as opposed to uh, all the time, or perhaps two weeks every three months or something like that. We've delayed the treatment in a chronic tinnitus model and preclinically to out to four weeks. Uh, after onset of tinnitus, and we've seen positive results. All right. 
And um, do I recall correctly that you you said uh, it it might also be effective not just for acute but also for chronic tinnitus of so someone who's had tinnitus for a decade or so? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're hopeful in that regard. So we our pilot data looked at that, um, and we waited uh, to to treat until four weeks after the tinnitus was established and still got reduction in tinnitus so all right so yeah. we feel hopeful for for that indication of chronic tinnitus in the study that we mentioned the grant we're applying for now to to uh, test this uh, more definitively in the chronic tinnitus model um, right just to uh, make sure yeah, meaning you will be recruiting people for the trial who've also who've had tinnitus for a long time, for instance. Yes. Uh -huh. All right. When you get to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once you get there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and will you be looking at different subsets of tinnitus, noise-induced versus non-noise-induced, for instance? Um, or are you at this? Will you only be looking at noise-induced tinnitus specifically? Well, we may start with that group of people since it's a more homogenous group of people, but if it shows effectiveness there, I would think we'd uh, expand that to other groups as well. But we might, you know, just for starters, might focus on that uh, situation because that group is more homogenous. And then maybe, for example, if that if it worked in that scenario, might try it for age-related tinnitus. All right, that makes sense. Yeah, is there anything else you can tell us about the phase one outcomes in terms of how many people percentage-wise benefited or uh, in what way they benefited? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was a study that was done in uh, healthy subjects that didn't have tinnitus or hearing loss. Oh, right. It was just safety testing, basically, uh -huh. right? Right. Mm -hmm. right. So you don't, uh, okay, you haven't had a chance to, to test that yet. Right. Let's move on to the hair cell regeneration um, injection treatment, which, as you pointed out, is a, in an earlier phase. Yeah, again, can you just take us through the, the basic mechanisms um i think you already uh, explained uh, in general terms that it it seems to regenerate hair cells how exactly does it do that mm -hmm. well as as you know and as our listeners probably know with noise induced hearing loss blast induced hearing loss age related hearing loss the hair cells die off first especially in the higher frequency region of the cochlea and uh, supporting cells are left behind. They're more resistant to the damage. And um, in birds, for example, those supporting, supporting cells can spontaneously regenerate into new hair, hair cells and the birds can hear again. But in mammals, that doesn't happen for some reason. And so, HES1 is a protein involved in the notch system, and HES1 protein, when it's expressed in the supporting cells, seems to be inhibitory. It keeps those supporting cells from 
transdifferentiating into new hair cells. So uh, our technology provides a silencing RNA molecule that knocks out the message to that protein, HES1 protein, reduces the level of HES1 protein in the supporting cells and allows them to transdifferentiate into new hair cells. And based on restoration of hearing in our models, uh, those are functional hair cells. And when you say transdifferentiate, that's we're talking about cell multiplication, so new cells actually grow, or is is that mm-hmm. how it works? There's probably a a, uh, a small amount of cell division that happens, but most of it is just transformation of a supporting cell into a new hair cell versus uh, a multiplication effect. So there's probably some cell division and new cells going on, but that's a smaller component than the actual conversion of a supporting cell into a hair cell. Mm-hmm. All right. So same question as for the pill here. Can you describe what the treatment protocol might look like? Maybe it's even more more difficult to say so for this treatment since it's so early stage. But We can tell you what our dream is. Yeah. <laughs> So all of our preclinical data so far are based on uh, one 24-hour treatment and then a substantial recovery of hair cells and, and hearing function. And then that hearing function that's restored remains stable for as long as we've looked at it, which is about 10 weeks post-injury. So... Um, and that's with a direct infusion of the material into the cochlea. But our ultimate goal is for this to occur with a transtympanic injection and uh, diffusion of the medicine into the cochlea or some other creative drug delivery approaches that are less invasive. And we've seen, um, we've seen knockdown of the target, which is necessary with the transtympanic injection. So our current grant is looking at the transtympanic route in more detail. So right now we get this substantial recovery of hearing just with one treatment, but we plan to to test multiple treatments. There's no reason why multiple treatments might not even give better results. And if we use the transtympanic route, multiple treatments are are quite possible. All right. Is it difficult when you inject a substance into the ear to get the concentration and the the localization uh, just right? Well, it involves a surgical opening into the basal turn of the cochlea. And so that has to be done very delicately. And then we use a mini-osmotic pump, which infuses the medicine in solution at a very uh, slow rate, like one microliter an hour uh, over a 24-hour period. But similar approach could be used in human if needed. For example, when you do a cochlear implant, either open up the round window membrane or make a small hole in the cochlea in this case, to get an electrode into the cochlea, but in our case, 
could be to get a drug into the cochlea. But like I say, our, our hope and our dream is that the trans tympanic route will will work and we have preliminary preliminary data to suggest that it will. Are there other delivery methods that might work? Someone mentioned on the forum nanoparticle delivery. I'm not, not entirely sure myself what that is, but yeah. <laughs> so we encapsulate our silencing RNA into a, a nanoparticle because silencing RNA can be digested by enzymes in the cell. So the nanoparticles protective of the drug, the silencing RNA, until it gets into the cell and then it releases the drug to do its to do its work. Nanoparticles are a little bit can be a little bit like Trojan horses because nanoparticles can actively be taken up by cells and brought into the cells depending on their size. So it's not just a process of diffusion. It's a little bit like um, uh, a Trojan horse situation, but instead of bringing the enemy into the cell, <laughs> we're bringing the good stuff into the cell. Yeah, so we use nanoparticles for our injection uh, technology for that reason. But I know there are other labs in, uh, associated with Harvard and other places that are looking at microfluidic micro delivery of drugs and those sorts of things. Um, so while people are, some people are focusing on the drug, other people are focusing on creative and less invasive ways to deliver. So it's exciting that there's progress being made on both fronts. So I guess for this treatment, I mean, same question as, as for the other treatment, um, but for this one, maybe it's a bit more speculative. To what extent do you think it will help those with acute or chronic tinnitus or hyperacusis? Yeah, so here comes some speculation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's thought that um, perhaps one of the causes of tinnitus is decreased input from the cochlea that leads to increased central gain in a, a maladaptive way that leads to the tinnitus perception. And so perhaps by restoring hearing, the increased uh, auditory input from the cochlea to the central nervous system will allow a readjustment of the, of the gain in the system so that tinnitus will go away. One of the things that I'm kind of interested in is I'd say about half to two-thirds of patients that I see that have tinnitus that get hearing aids because they have significant hearing loss. When I see them back three or four months later to see how they're doing, maybe half to two-thirds of them seem to have a reduction in tinnitus or sometimes it actually goes away or they say, well, when I have my hearing aids in, I don't get any tinnitus at that point. And so I think, again, maybe thinking about the gain theory of tinnitus, that there's more auditory input from the from the hearing aid, and so somehow the central nervous system readjusts. So my speculation would be that it would help. <laughs> That's a long way of saying that, but it's really speculation. And our focus really with that technology is on restoring hearing.
Yeah, it makes sense. I'm I'm particularly interested in this question because there's a, a very strong faction, let's say, on the Tinnitus Talk forum that believes hearing regeneration will be the cure for tinnitus. And and my sense is always that it might be a cure insofar as tinnitus is caused by hearing loss. So for a certain subset of tinnitus mm-hmm. patients, uh, but it won't be the cure for everyone. Uh, that seems to just make so much sense to me. But uh, yeah, would you agree with that? Yes. Silver bullets are, are hard to find. Like we said, tinnitus has so many different etiologies, so and not all of it's related to cochlear injury. So yeah, exactly. lots of hair cells, but hopefully yeah. for a subset, it would be helpful. Absolutely, yeah, I would certainly certainly hope so. And obviously, you know, restoring hearing is in and of itself a wonderful goal to achieve. But yeah, there are also. I think there are scientists who theorize that even restoring hearing, even if the tinnitus is caused by the hearing loss, it might not cure the tinnitus because by that time the tinnitus has become centralized in the brain. So even if it was initially triggered by hearing loss, uh, if you restore the hearing, the tinnitus might still remain because it's sort of, let's say, ingrained Mm -hmm. in the brain by that time. Sure. That's understandable, and that may be so. But again, like I say, with people who start wearing hearing aids, some of them, a good, good proportion of them, describe less tinnitus. So maybe it's not as ingrained as we think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and again, this so this this is all speculation. But uh, you've seen real life examples um, of tinnitus reducing or disappearing with hearing aids. So that that must mean something. All right. Well, I hope that you will be able to very soon move to phase one trials for the hearing regeneration uh, injections. Oh, thank you. We appreciate the encouragement. That's what we're working hard for. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're rooting for you. It kind of brings me to the end of a very long list of questions that I had in front of me but perhaps there's something you guys want to add or conclude with. Well, I'd like to say thanks for having the opportunity to visit with you, Hazel, and be part of the Tinnitus podcast. It's uh, really been fun to uh, talk to you and uh, so many good, thoughtful questions and really appreciate your listeners being such advocates for cures for hearing loss and tinnitus and their interests, their great questions. And uh, I guess it just continues to motivate me to, to keep working. Obstacles come up, but people like your listeners are just helps motivate me and our whole team to, to keep after it and not let anything be a permanent obstacle. So, I've really enjoyed, you know, this session with you, and uh, I really thank you a lot for the opportunity to let people know what we're about. Thank you, Rick. It's it's been a pleasure uh, from my side for sure. Justin, any concluding remarks? Yeah, I'd like to say thank you, Hazel, uh, to you and to Mark, you 
and to all of the uh, people that are listening and uh, are engaged on the Tennis Talk forums. I was really impressed by the civility and just the, the amazing uh, openness of the people to share their stories and ask questions. And I really appreciate their patience with me. I am not a scientist. I am not a doctor. And so, um, you know, many times I had to come back and ask Rick, hey, how do I answer this? <laughs> so I appreciate the patience and uh, uh, I'll continue to, to monitor and try to get on there uh, uh, as often as we can. But as you know, with this uh, this new agreement, we're, we're quite busy right now. So um, and, and it's all for the, the benefit of uh, of the listeners here. So thank you very much for this opportunity to share our mission uh, and share the vision that we have uh, with you. Well, thank you guys so much for your time and dedication. And, well, we hope to hear more updates from you soon. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.